Christ's name, amen. This evening, the study is the new heavens and the new earth, and we're going to look at three primary passages of Scripture, along with some supporting ones from Isaiah, uh, 2 Peter, and then the book of Revelation. Now, tonight is going to be a lead-in, really, to the new Jerusalem, uh, and that's how we're going to conclude as we get to Revelation 21. Uh, We're going to stop before we get to the details of the new Jerusalem, and that's what the next Bible study to follow will cover. So far, uh, we have gone over eternity past and the heavens, the concept of heaven in the Old Testament, the body and the soul, what happens to believers at death, characteristics of the present heaven or what we would refer to as the intermediate state the return, resurrection, and judgment, and then the millennial reign of Jesus. Within the millennial reign of Jesus, uh, we looked at the prophetic promises regarding Jesus, Israel, creation, and believers, all of which will find part of their fulfillment in the millennium. And then the millennial kingdom will end and the eternal kingdom, the eternal state, will begin. As we think about the new heavens and the new earth, uh, they are often referred to collectively as the eternal state. And we've thought about this in broader framework and not gotten caught up in timing and the exact details of it uh, because there can be some disagreements within that and yet even still hold to the foundational elements of it all. But by way of an overview of the timeline, just to put this into perspective of when the new heavens and the new earth might come about, according to the scripture, uh, we would think about the tribulation period, the great tribulation that will come in the future, which of course will uh, end with the second coming of Christ and the battle of Armageddon, and then the millennium, that 1,000 year reign of Christ on the earth. At the end of that 1,000-year reign of Christ on the earth, there will be the final rebellion and Satan's uh, final judgment, and then the great white throne judgment, and then the new heavens and the new earth. Now, I'll give you just a brief warning here on the front end tonight as we get into part of the scripture about the new heavens and the new earth. We're going to see a dual reference in part of the prophecy that can be a little bit confusing but I'll outline that as we get to it so you see where the scripture is going with it. First truth I want to start with tonight is that the current heavens and earth are under a curse because of sin. Now before we jump into these primary passages that I gave you at the outset, I want to preface this with some scripture from Romans chapter 8. And in Romans chapter 8 and verse 22, The scripture says, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. The whole of creation groans and cries out for renewal. Now here's the basic teaching in Romans chapter 8. The Bible teaches that because of sin, all of creation has been subjected to a curse that all of creation has been subjected to frustration and to futility, and it's God himself who has subjected creation to that curse. 
but he's not done so merely punitively uh, or even just to make a point. He's done so in hope. The Bible teacher J. Vernon McGee said years ago, uh, some have called our attention to the fact that nature sings in the minor key. The wind blowing through the pine trees on a mountainside and the breaking of the surf on some lonely shore both emit the same sob. The music of trees has been recorded and it is doleful. The startled cry of some frightened animal or bird pierces the night air and chills the blood. And surely nature bears audible testimony to the accuracy of Scripture. I think it's fairly obvious that creation is not what it was created to be or as it was intended to be because of sin. Part of the consequences that came because of the fall and the consequence that followed after that from God was that the ground itself was cursed after the fall. Thorns and thistles and weeds began to grow. The pain of childbirth was introduced. Death entered the world. All of creation became caught in a cycle of decay and death. And all of that was as a result of the rebellion that came against God. And we have a description of the corruption of nature as well as the scope of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. One commentator put it this way. He said, the suffering of creation is like birth pangs leading to a glorious new world rather than the death pangs of a dying creation. The intense pain leads to a joyous outcome. So when God subjected it to the curse, when God subjected creation to the consequences of the fall, it was not the end, but it was uh, the hope of a new beginning. It was the hope of new life that would be anchored in Christ, in God's promises, in God's plans for his children. And what we know is that regardless of how significant all of these consequences are, our present sufferings are insignificant compared to the glory that will be soon revealed to us. We know that as believers, this is part of faith, that a glorious future awaits us with God. And all of creation is awaiting that glorious future, eagerly longing for the day when we'll be delivered from death and decay. So the current heavens and earth are under a curse because of sin. The second truth is this, the new heavens and the new earth are anticipated in prophecy. The new heavens and the new earth are anticipated in prophecy. Now we look to Isaiah 65 and verse 17. For I will create a new heaven and a new earth. The past events will not be remembered or come to mind. Let me read that again. Isaiah 65 and verse 17. For I will create a new heaven and a new earth. The past events will not be remembered or come to mind. In Isaiah 65, God outlines the previous rebellion of his people against him as well as the judgment that came upon them. But in the midst of that pronouncement of judgment and consequences, the tone shifts to redemption. This is kind of a common theme in the scripture, actually, that the pronouncement is made, 
the obvious consequences are, are before the people. God states what is obvious. He's already warned them of what was going to happen. Then it's coming. And then he says, and even still, there is hope. The setting specifically here is Jerusalem after the return of the exiles. Decades have passed. Much has been accomplished. They've rebuilt the walls. Uh, they've rebuilt the temple. But yet much of the city was still uh, in rubble. It was still in the dark. The people of Israel were in a time of darkness that was pervasive over them. Because of this long exile in Babylon, even though it had ended and people were beginning that return or in the midst of it, God speaks a fresh word to them. And what we find here in Isaiah 65, I think, is both a transition and a connector. If you'll note in verse 16, it says, For the former troubles will be forgotten and hidden uh, from my sight. And then in verse 17, For I will create a new heavens and a new earth. So the promise in this transition, in this connector, is that the former troubles are going to pass away and there's going to be something new. Basically, God is going to forgive and to forget. And this is the beauty of grace. This is the application of God's mercy in our lives, that God will do something that we can't bring about on our own. Now, there's another reference in Isaiah 66 and verse 22. It says, as the new heavens and the new earth that I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and descendants endure. So God is saying that that new heavens and that new earth is going to endure. He's, he's declaring that. And the name of God and the name of God's descendants uh, will endure. You remember Jesus made it clear in Matthew 24 and verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away. There's these illusions in the scripture throughout uh, that tell us there's something that is going to be materially different and new that's coming in the future. The writer of Hebrews, again, describes heaven and earth as wearing out like a garment. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 11. But now let's look for a moment at this longer passage in 2 Peter chapter 3. And I want to begin reading in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10 and read through verse 13 because he's speaking of what is going to come in the future about the new heavens and the new earth and what we might anticipate, how that's specifically going to come about. Beginning in verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and on that day the heavens will pass away with a loud noise the elements will burn and be dissolved, and the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. Verse 11, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, it is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness. As you wait for and earnestly desire the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be on fire and be dissolved, and the elements will melt with the heat. But based on his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth where righteousness will dwell. So we ask the question in 2 Peter chapter 3, 
what exactly is he describing? What will God replace when he establishes the, this new heavens and new earth, and how will God bring it about? Now, herein lies part of the prophetic uh, mystery that we need to get into perspective, I believe, to understand Second Peter 3. And this is what I was talking about, uh, a dual view, in other words, of time frames that sometimes we can conflate. When we conflate them, we have no idea of, uh, or not as clear of an idea what it's talking about. There's some confusion related to Second Peter 3 because the, I think there are millennial truths that are mentioned in the same context with the new heavens and the new earth. Now, it's not uncommon in prophecy to bring things together that are both uh, distant from one another chronologically and still connected to one another. So we find this in the scripture, for example, with frequent reference to the first and the second comings of the second comings of the Messiah, um, actually separated by uh, a long period of time. Another example is the mention of the resurrection of the righteous and the wicked in the same verse as it is in Daniel chapter 12. Events that we believe are separated by potentially thousands of years, and yet they're mentioned side by side. It'd be easy to read it and think, well, that's, just, that's the same event. That's the same thing that's happening. And perhaps at times that could be the same things that they're referring to, but that's not the case here, I don't think, in Second Peter. Second Peter 3 refers to the day of the Lord, which is going to begin before the millennium, as well as the destruction of the heavens and the earth with fire, which I believe will take place at the end of the millennium. And if other passages are put together, that sequence of events becomes more clear. Now, what's going to happen is the current heaven and earth that are replaced uh, is being referred to broadly as uh, the entirety of the created universe. But there is a limitation to this. The Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible says the heaven that will be renewed is not the heaven of God's presence, but the heaven of human existence, the starry expanse which constitutes the universe. So remember we've talked about the, the first heaven and the second heaven and Paul's reference to being caught up into what was the very presence of God. And I think that's probably the case here, that what's going to be renewed is everything except what is now in the presence of God, which of course would be utter perfection. And uh, it would not need to be burned up as though by fire. So that's where I want to go with that. Now, how will the old go out of existence and the new come to be? Well, you'll notice that there are references to being set on fire and dissolved. Talks about passing away with a roar, melting, uh, fled away. And there are two main views about how this is going to come to pass. One is that the earth will merely be renovated. The other is that uh, the new heavens and the new earth will mean that it has been replaced. The phrase burned up and dissolved with fire 
can convey the idea of being uncovered or laid bare. So to put it in a little simpler terms, it's either going to be purified or it's going to be destroyed and made new. Either way, the old and corrupt sinful elements will be melted away and what God has made will be pure. And all disobedience and disease and destruction, it's going to dissolve and it's going to go away. Now, I believe that it's going to be totally made new, that, it, that it's essentially going to be replaced is the way I read it. Uh, but either way, that's I, I, not particularly a hill I would want to die on. Um, I think that we can make the argument for it being utterly purified and made new as well. Psalm 102 and verse 25 and 26 says, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Psalm 102 and verse 25 and 26 says, They will perish, but you will endure. Yes, they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will change them, and they will be changed. Now, let's turn our attention to a description of the new heavens and the new earth. I don't know everything there is to know about it, and we won't know until we get there and the Lord teaches us. But I can tell you the new heavens and the new earth will be magnificent. There's no doubt about it. The new heavens and the new earth will be magnificent. Now, you remember the Faith Hall of Fame in Hebrews chapter 11? Uh, First of all, we have the definition of what faith is. Uh, We're given an example in Hebrews of uh, the many faithful servants uh, who laid it all on the line just looking forward to the promise. And then in Hebrews 11 and verse 13, it says, These all died in faith, although they had not received the things they were promised, but they saw them from a distance, greeted them, and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. Now those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a homeland, but they now desire a better place, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Verse 16. The country of their own, in Hebrews 11, will be a real place with a real capital city, the New Jerusalem. And that takes us to Revelation 21, where we're going to spend the balance of our time together this evening. Revelation 21, and I'm going to begin reading here in just a moment in verse 1, and I'm going to go through verse 8. Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Verse 3, Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. 
verse 5. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I'm making everything new. He also said, right, because these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowards, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now you remember that the book of Revelation contains prophecies of events leading up to the return of Christ to the earth and then the establishment of God's eternal reign. As I mentioned already this evening, after Christ returns, he's going to rule in the 1,000-year millennial kingdom with the resurrected saints. After the 1,000 years, all other humans who have lived and died throughout history will then be resurrected. And what we will see come together as eternity comes into view is that the story of Scripture is going to come full circle. Here's what I mean by that. Paradise lost will become paradise restored. Human history started with a garden, and it's going to end with a city. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the end, John sees a new heaven and a new earth. In the beginning, the darkness was called night. And in the end, there will be no night in that city because of the glory of God. In the beginning, death came after sin. But in the end, there will be no more death. In the beginning, man's walk with God was interrupted because of sin In the end, man's walk with God will be fully restored. In the beginning, access to the tree of life was removed as a consequence of sin. But in the end, access to the tree of life will be reinstated. The preacher Donald Gray Barnhouse said, We see that the history of time is finished. And in this passage, the history of eternity is about to begin. So now let's draw out some of these characteristics of the magnificence of the new heavens and the new earth from Revelation in this passage we just read. First of all, you'll note that the scripture says there will be no more sea. Now, if you love the ocean and the sand and the sun, you might already be disappointed because it seems rather strange. But there is some spiritual symbolism here because to the ancient Jew, the sea was often used as a symbol of something that was uh, foreboding and overwhelming and threatening and even sinister. And on the other hand, in their thought, the river or the stream was always used as a symbol, a positive symbol of goodness. Uh, John Walvard said the 
uh, eternal state is clearly indicated in the absence of the sea for frequent mentions of bodies of water occur in the millennial passages. And then he says, for the Jewish mind, the sea was a place of separation and evil. This is interesting because in Revelation, it's shown to be the source of the satanic beast back in Revelation 13 and also the place of the dead in Revelation 20. Stephen Lawson said, to the ancient peoples, the sea was frightful and fearsome. It was an ancient monster, a watery grave. They had no compass to guide them in the open sea, and on a cloudy day, their ships were lost without the stars or the sun to guide them. And the loss of human life in the sea was often beyond calculation. So what do we make of this, that there's not going to be a sea, evidently? Well, it doesn't preclude the idea that there could be large bodies of water. We don't know that. Uh, After all, a great river will flow right through the capital city here of the new heavens and the new earth. Um, A flowing river's got to go somewhere. Uh, There are some pretty remarkable lakes in the world that could be described almost as sea-like, so we don't know. Um, Ezekiel 47 speaks of water flowing from the temple, which parallels the water flowing from the throne. Uh, And the scripture says, I saw a great number of trees on either side of the river. This water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah, where it enters the Dead Sea. And when it empties into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh. And there will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. So we're not sure exactly what to make of that. I I think it has more to do with um, the closeness of the proximity of how the new heavens and the new earth is going to be um, remade by God. Uh, But at any rate, he saw fit to put it in the scripture here and to tell us about it. We also learned that the new Jerusalem will come out of heaven from God. That's what he says here in Revelation. This is the Jerusalem of hope. This is the promise that is coming from above. This is the place of our real and eternal citizenship. I find it interesting that the fact that it is referred to as Jerusalem, uh, I think that's significant because it speaks at least in part to the continuity with the present earth. Uh, John uses the most uh, beautiful, striking image he can think of in a bride that's coming down the aisle to meet uh, her husband. Uh, The new Jerusalem, which was in heaven, will come down out of heaven from God to the new earth. And when John saw the city, that's how he described it. Uh, Anthony Anthony Hockema said, the new Jerusalem uh, does not remain in a far-off space, but it comes down to the renewed earth. It's there that the redeemed will spend eternity in their resurrection bodies. So heaven and earth, now separated, will then be merged. The new earth will also be heaven, since God will be there with his people. Glorified believers, in other words, will continue to be in heaven while they're inhabiting the new earth. Now we're going to get to the new Jerusalem because the verses that follow what we read in Revelation are the ones that everybody thinks about when they think about heaven with the beautiful description of all that we can expect and what it's going to look like and all that. But you're going to have to hold on and wait for that uh, for the next study. 
We also find here that God will dwell on earth with his people forever and ever. That's interesting because we'll not need a temple in Jerusalem that was in the millennial kingdom because God the Father and Jesus Christ will be the temple. The tabernacle of God will be with men and we will be his people and he will be our God forever and ever. After all, God's desire is to be in fellowship with people and our purpose is to be in fellowship with God. And that's part of that um, coming full circle that I was talking about because that was God's original intent in the garden that man would serve him and, and worship him and commune with him and know him. And then it was sin that fractured that relationship. It was sin that broke that fellowship. And now having been brought back together through the cross and the resurrection, uh, through the redemptive work of Christ, we're going to be in the presence of God forever. The very idea that God will be present with his people. Now it does not mean that God will cease to rule from his throne as we've seen already and even in the present day. Um, But here's what Spurgeon had to say about it. He said, this is the greatest glory of heaven in the ultimate restoration of what was lost in the fall. I do not think the glory of Eden lay in its grassy walks or in the boughs bending with luscious fruit, but its glory lay in this, that the Lord God walked in the garden in the cool of the day. Here was Adam's highest privilege, that he could have companionship with the God most high. Now, I say this periodically, but I think it's fitting to say it here as well. The essence of biblical faith is to know God. It's the heart of it. We, we can put a lot of other things with it, and there are many things that we do because of our faith and because of who we are and the good works that he uh, created us for. But the heart of it all is to know God. And I believe that more people would be more passionate about their understanding of what it means even to be a Christian if they understood in their heart of hearts that this is the essence of the whole deal. It is to be forgiven and to be in right standing with God. It is to have the Holy Spirit of God indwelling you. It is to have the Word of God that's been inspired and is true from the beginning to the end guiding you. And it's God who's counseling you and comforting you and directing you along the way. And it's that communion with Him that makes our faith what it is. And that's what we long for in heaven. That's the, that's the greatest treasure of heaven because God will be present with His people. Uh, Alan, Alan Gomes said, God is omnipresent, which means that when his presence fills the new earth, it does not cease to fill the highest heaven as well. Moreover, God is transcendent, which means that however much he will abide with us on the new earth, he will not cease to exist beyond it as well. God will continue to transcend this earthly sphere and abide in heaven together with his angels, just as he did before. You'll note here in Revelation that God will wipe away every tear. Perhaps this is one of the greatest blessings we're looking for as well. There'll be no more sorrow, pain, 
loss, crying, death. We'll all have glorified spiritual bodies. We have all cried tears of affection and tears of sympathy and tears of repentance and tears of disappointment and tears of yearning. They're all going to be dried up forever. And the reason they're going to be dried up is because of the absence of sin. Somebody said man comes into the world with a cry and goes out with a groan and all between is more or less intoned with helpless wailing. But the hallelujahs of the renewed world will drown out the voice of woe forever. And I know that's hard to even, at least for me, it's hard to even fathom that we'll be in a place with no more suffering. None. It'll be gone, done with, over with. And we'll know joy forevermore. If that doesn't make you want to be in the presence of God in the future, you're missing out on understanding of what that renewal is going to be like. And then I think it's going to be a place of unimaginable beauty. Now we're going to get to this more in the verses to follow. And just in the incredible description that we have of what we can expect. But I think about some of the places that I've had the opportunity to travel to in the world. And on many occasions, uh, I've been in awe and overwhelmed by what I've seen. You can travel around this beautiful state that we live in. And depending on what the time of the year is or the particular setting that you're in, you can see things that will just make you in awe of the Creator God. I want you to think just for a moment about the most beautiful place you've ever seen in God's creation in this life. Now I want you to think about that magnified exponentially. It's hard to even conceive of. C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory said, at present we're on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We cannot mingle with the splendors that we see, but all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. And when we get in, we're going to see unimaginable beauty. Now, how then should we live in light of this coming promise that the Lord has given to us? Well, we ought to make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with God. That's what Peter said. That's what he wrote. I continue in 2 Peter 3 and verse 11. You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Now, here's the deal. You're not going to be there if you're not at peace with God. 
But if you are at peace with God through the cross, then God will transform you and shape your life. And I I have said through the years many times that I believe one of the primary reasons for prophecy, in addition to giving us that future hope, one of the primary reasons for prophecy is to prepare us and to purify us. Because if you really believe these things that we've read tonight in the Scripture, if you really believe that some day out in the future you're going to be in the very presence of God who created you, if you believe that, it's going to change how you live in the here and now because you want to be ready. You want to be prepared to meet Him. So heaven, as we think about it in the future, will include, in summary, the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. Let me say that one more time just so you don't miss the point. Heaven, as we think about it in the future, will include the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. Furthermore, this future heaven will be the place where all believers will live for eternity. I love this quote by John Stott. He said, lift up your eyes. You are certainly a creature of time, but you are also a child of eternity. You are a citizen of heaven and an alien and an exile on the earth. You are a pilgrim traveling to the celestial city. We have important duties on the earth, but we must never allow them to preoccupy us in such a way that we forget who we are or where we're going. That's what I'm saying in terms of prophecy. We can't forget who we are and where we're going. So next week, we're going to focus on the New Jerusalem, which I think is synonymous with what we commonly think of as heaven. And we're going to look at Revelation 21, verse 9 through 27. It may take me two parts to do it, but we'll at least get started. We'll see how it unfolds. But my prayer for you is that your soul would be encouraged and that you would be filled with hope and that in the darkest moments of life, whatever it is you're dealing with, whatever it is you're going through, whatever it is that you're facing, in your mind you're thinking, God, first of all, you're present with me and this is not the end of the story. These tears are not the end of the story. This loss is not the end of the story. This heartbreak is not the end of the story. This uncertainty is not the end of the story. The end of it is going to be with you. And with you is going to be eternal joy like we can only think about right now, but we'll experience it someday in reality.